We've been walking through the book of Daniel, and the book of Daniel forces us to, to both ask and, and provides us with answers to the question, of what does it look like to follow Jesus when you're living in exile in a hostile land? What does it look like? How does it play? And we walked through chapter 1, and, and, we, and we asked, are we really resolved to follow God and honor His holiness? Chapter 2, last week, we, we looked, how do we respond when the threat of imminent danger comes knocking at our door. And this week, as we continue to move forward into chapter 3, we come face to face with the question of, is in fact Jesus truly worthy of our everything, even when He costs us everything? So if you got your Bibles, let me invite you, church family, to turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel chapter 3, and as you turn to Daniel chapter 3, let me, uh, let me read the last couple verses of chapter 2. Remember chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It, it, it causes him great, uh, great frustration, concern, and he puts this challenge. He's going to kill all the wise men unless they tell him what the dream is. None of them can do it. Daniel steps forward. Uh, he and his friends, they seek the Lord and pray. God shows them the dream. Daniel interprets the dream. And following that, here's what it says, chapter 2, verse 48, then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So here, as a result of the Lord's movement, he has raised up these four young men into positions, I mean, Daniel at this point is really the number two man in the empire. And flowing out of this, here's what it says in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width six cubits, that's 90 feet high, 90 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, Pause there for a moment because this is going to give us our setting. We've just left this moment of, of great relief, of great jubilation. God has delivered uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the wrath of the king as has, has God used them to deliver all of the other wise men, the Chaldeans, those who, who were also destined to be slaughtered by the king's wrath. And the king's appointed them to these positions, and then all it says is Nebuchadnezzar set up an image. Now, we, there's a lot of debate. Does this happen immediately after the fact? It could be because we discover this image is covered in gold and certainly seems reflective of uh, the gold head that he sees in the dream in chapter 2. It could be that it's fairly soon after. Uh, there's some who say it might be around eight years after the dream. In 595, 594 BC, there was an attempted coup amongst some of uh, Babylon's uh, leadership and ne Nebuchadnezzar put it down, and so some would say the setting for this is possibly uh, Nebuchadnezzar uh, seeking to make sure and, and bring some loyalty and stability back. Some would say it may be as many as 20 years after the events of chapter 2, uh, af sometime after Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon has fully, uh, fully sieged and torn Jerusalem down and, and brought the last group, the third wave of exiles, and and seeking there, regardless of what the circumstances are that force this occasion, what's important for us to know, as we'll see in a second, is the occasion Nebuchadnezzar is using this moment to, and using uh, 
religious imagery to try to bring political stability and loyalty from his leading rulers and subjects to his rule. And so what he does is he, he sets up this image of gold, and if you, if you follow those dimensions, it's a pretty pretty misshapen image if it's the image of a man of some kind because it's 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Now, some may say it might be sitting up on a pedestal. It might variety of things. Regardless, Scripture's not concerned so much with what the image is as it is the fact that this image is something set up by Nebuchadnezzar. It's outside the province of Babylon, the plains of Dura, which uh, are just southeast of, of the, the ruins of Babylon today. And And here in this place, the people go out, and here's what happens. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had set up. Now, time doesn't permit to give you, but all of those are are, are the varying levels of the highest-ranking authorities in the Babylonian empire from throughout the Babylonian Empire, okay? Here's what Nebuchadnezzar has done. He's put out the word, and he's assembled all of, the, all of the senators, all of the representatives, all of their staff. He's put out the word and brought all of the state governors, and he's bringing them all there to the center of the National Mall around the Washington Monument. That's what he's doing if you want to put it in terms that might make more sense to us. Now, henceforth, if you hear me just say, the rulers, I'm referring to all of those groups for the sake of time. So he sends out this word, then those rulers were assembled for the dedication of the image. They came and showed up that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, to you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the, the psaltery, the bagpipe, which don't be confused, that's not a bagpipe like you and I think. It's actually a, more like a drum, but that's how you translate it correctly from the Hebrew. But don't think bagpipe like amazing grace and kilts and all that. That's not what's going on here. And all kinds of music. And when you hear all this, you're going to fall down. You're going to prostrate yourself and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when the people heard all the sound of the music, they fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. So here's the setting. You've heard me already use it, but, but for the sake of our imagery to kind of imagine, and if you've ever been to Washington, D.C. on the National Mall, When you go to the Washington Monument, this huge towering spire, when you go there, it sits up on a spot where if you look this way, you can see the White House where the president lives. You look this way, you can see the Lincoln Memorial. You look this way, you see right through the mall, all the Smithsonian museums, up to the Congress building. This this is the plains of Dura. It's set outside the city, but no doubt see the city in the distance. He's called together all of the leading rulers throughout all of all of Babylon, and and he's assembled the greatest band. He's smart. He knows that music can be used to inspire loyalty, that it can can be used to uh, take, uh, if you will, manipulate people into doing whatever. He uses the power of music. He assembles the best of the musicians. 
And they put together what must have undoubtedly been a, a mixture of, of, of a religious and, and nationalistic ceremony. And he says, when you, hear all the, when you hear all the songs, you bow yourself down to that, that image and you, and you worship. And you see what happens. They all come out. The music plays. And they all fall down. There's not a second's hesitation. There's, wh wh whether, they, uh, whether they are legitimate about it or not, the threat of standing out and not fitting in, and more likely the threat of immediately being taken and thrown into a furnace, which, by the way, it's pretty well understood that furnace would have been right there because it would have been a furnace they used to build the image. So they could see, and they could see their imminent demise if they choose to resist. They value their lives. They fall down. They worship. It says, but for this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans, now remember we saw them last week, they're uh, some of the, the, uh, the master astrologers, the Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship the golden image shall be cast into a furnace of blazing fire. Now there are certain Jews whom you have pointed over the administration of the province of Babylon. Namely, not just certain ones, we'll, we'll tell you their names, we'll go ahead and spell it out for you, king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, here's what happens. Obviously, there's a massive amount of people that are out there, and the music played, and they all, they all fell down, and at least from Nebuchadnezzar's point of view, everything went off without a hitch. He has secured the, the loyalty of his, of his subjects. He has secured the loyalty of his leaders, whether it was a coup that had just been pointed down or, or whether it was seeking to use uh, some kind of religious ceremony to bring about, uh, to bring about an, a... a an oath of loyalty and, and to bring some, some level of peace throughout the end, whatever the circumstances, well, it seems to work. But somewhere in there, he's missed the fact that there were three young men whom he had appointed who, who remained standing, who didn't fall. Now, these Chaldeans, which if you remember, that term on one hand can refer to these master astrologers. On the other hand, it can refer to those who are really what we might say ethnically pure Babylonians from the ancient times and sometimes a mixture of both. These guys who dislike the Jews, they come up and they go, hey, king, oh, you're so good, king. May you long live the king. They said, listen, you, you've, you've, made this, you've made this decree, but there's specifically three guys you appointed. They, they've not just not followed the decree They've disrespected you. It's not that they've got other gods that they seek to worship loyally, and you've already seen the action of their God. No, 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 king. They hate you. This is, this is coming against you. They're not, they're not doing what you say. And they come in and they bring these charges. Now, these charges aren't just, they're not just being opportunists. In fact, the language there when it says, uh, when it says the Chaldeans came forward and brought charges, Brought charges in the original Hebrew literally means to tear and eat to pieces. 
They're, they're not just being opportunistic. These are men who hate Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There is a, a bitterness, a venom, a fervor against them, and they see the opportunity to take them out, and, they, and notice how they make it personal. Now, we'll see in a moment, the three men don't mean any disrespect. They continue to call Nebuchadnezzar king. No, they don't mean any disrespect towards him personally. Instead, what it is is they are undivided and loyal in their worship of the one true God. These people come in, and that's what sin does. Let's makes it per- they, they, they have disregarded you, king. So then it says, Nebuchadnezzar, in a rage and anger, gives orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he brings them before him. He says, hey, I heard you didn't. I heard you didn't bow down. Now, I'm going to give you a second shot. And you may go, why would he give him a second shot? No one really knows. You'll have to ask Nebuchadnezzar if you ever get the opportunity one day. But he gives him another shot. And then he says this, look at the end of verse 15. He says, but if you do not immediately worship, we'll immediately throw you into the, the, the furnace of blazing fire. And listen to what he says, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? In a single moment, Nebuchadnezzar flies into a, a burning rage. He brings the three in front of him. Hey, what are you thinking, guys? You owe me everything. This is so simple. We're going to give you another shot because you're still better than all the other options I've got. And you need to do it because... And notice what he does when he makes that statement. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't just say he's a powerful king. He, he sets himself up as divine. What God could deliver you from my hand? My hand is more powerful than any God you could follow. You see, at this point, Nebuchadnezzar from chapter 2 knows that there's a God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who, who is, in his mind, far off and can send dreams and, and can bring the interpretation through his prophets, but he doesn't yet know that the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is not the God who is far off, but the God who is near. So he sets himself up in unbelievable arrogance, and in response, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if He does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, if you're walking through this passage, we've just come to the top of the mountain of Daniel chapter 3. And this is pivotal for everything. Here's what they say. One, do you notice the king flying off in rage, the king believing lies, the king who is, who is threatening their life, their safety? Do you notice they don't respond back to him sarcastically? They don't respond rudely. They still call him king. He's the king that they understand God has sovereignly allowed to be the ruler over them. They honor his authority. They speak to him kindly, but they say, king, look, we get it. There's nothing we can say to you that's going to convince you to understand where we're at. The time, the time for argument, the time for apologetics is done. All that remains is for you to just see the faithfulness the faithful witness of our worship. They say, listen, we know our God. 
We have no doubt about who He is. He's the one true God. We have no doubt about what He can do. He's more than capable of reaching down and rescuing us from your hand. What we don't know is not His character. What we don't know is not His power. We just don't know what His purpose is in this moment. We know what, he's, what His will is. He's already told us that. He's told us that we should have no other gods before Him. He's told us that we should bow down to no other idols before Him. We know what His will is. He's told us in His Word. Not only that, we also know that He's the one true God, and because of that, our love and worship is due Him alone. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, they're not unsure about who God is or what He can do. In fact, they're exceedingly, they're absolutely solid, rock solid in their assurance. They know who God is and what He can do. But in an example of absolute, true, biblical faith, they submit to who they know God to be, to do what God has revealed to do, even if it costs them everything because they don't know if God will deliver them or not. They dare not presume to assume His purpose. They just know that He alone is worthy, and they will not bend their knee to a lesser God. Nebuchadnezzar's response, you might hope that his response would be, wow, look at, I can, what, a, what a witness, guys. You just won me over. Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered. The hostility and rage is so visible that his face physically changes towards them. He flies into a blind rage. We know it's a blind rage because if he wanted to make him, listen to what he says. It says, the men, he, made, he commanded the, sorry, he answered by giving orders. Heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. Heat it as hot as it can go, which would be about 1,500 degrees, by the way, Fahrenheit. He commanded the valiant warriors to tie these guys up. They're not running. Why does he need the Navy SEALs to tie them up? These men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, their clothes. Basically, they were tied up in what they were wearing, all of which would burst into flame instantly. We know he's in a blind rage because he's, he's making everything. If he wanted them to suffer, he'd turn that fire down. He just wants to obliterate them. So they do it. It says, for this reason, the king's command was urgent. The furnace was made extremely hot. The flame carried the fire, slew the, men and who slew the men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the guys, the Navy SEALs that drop them in, they get burnt alive. They die. But these three men fell into the midst of the furnace, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded. He stood up in haste. He said to his high officials, hey, wait a second. Didn't we only throw three men in the fire? And they said, absolutely, king, we, we can count. One, two, three. We threw three. And he said, look, I see four men loose walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods, is like one who is divine. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, come here. 
Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out in the midst of the fire. Then the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's officials gathered round, and they saw that regarding these men, the fire had no effect on their bodies, nor was a single hair singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor did they even smell like fire had come upon them. So here in this moment, the, th- the three guys go tumbling in, and, and just as much as Nebuchadnezzar is shocked, we, we're, we're left to wonder, how much were they shocked? Hey, it's not really hot in here. Hey, there's one who's divine in here with us, fellowshipping in the flames of the fire, just like Isaiah said, my... Our, in Isaiah 43, that when God said, I, I will be with you through the river, through the waters. I will be with you as you pass through the rivers. I will be with you in the fire. And in a very literal way, here they are. And they walk out, and it's as if nothing has happened to them. And Nebuchadnezzar is, is absolutely awestruck because the God that he once thought could do some things greater than his gods but was far off, now all of a sudden he sees he's not far off, he's near. He's a God who fellowships in the flame of the most fiery furnace. And he flows out of this, and in the last verses, he's going to come out, and and just to sum it up, he's going to come out and basically say, look, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no one can talk bad about him or else they will be thrown in a fiery furnace and we will make their house a rubble heap. And all of a sudden, we watch as God delivers. Now, as we walk through that passage, And we go back to the original question, is God worthy even if He costs us everything? You might go, well, that's a strange question, Pastor, because God did this miracle. He didn't cost Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego everything. They they came out unharmed, and everything seemed to go fine. and, And if we get fixated on the miracle, we miss what is the key question of the whole passage which is not a question of how God can or will deliver, but is a question of who is worthy of our worship. When you walk through this passage, 11 times the verb for worship appears. Five times the verb for serving a deity appears. Throughout the passage, the question is one of worship. And church family, in the midst of a world that will, that will call us to compromise at worship at every level, We are called to worship God alone because He is worthy. We're called to worship Him. What is worship? The English word simply means to acknowledge the worthiness of someone. Biblically, it refers to the response of humans to God revealing Himself. It's the response of humans broken and battered by sin. It's the response of humans weak in response to the gracious act of the triune God to reveal who He is to reveal what He's like, to reveal what we're made for and how we can enter into a relationship with Him. Worship is all about our response to who He is, and and true worship is a response of adoration. It's a response in which we pursue God, a response of humility, of submission. Ultimately, true worship is is obedience to the glory and greatness of who He is, and it can only take place in a real personal relationship with God, which means if you don't know Jesus Christ personally, you cannot worship Him. This is what it means to worship, and, and understand, church family, 
The question is not today, is God worthy? Let's be clear. God is worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He alone is God. He alone is good. He alone is holy. He alone is love. He is above all things, beyond all things, and before all things. Sovereign, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good, all-present. He is the author, creator, and sustainer of all things. He is the redeemer, the perfect sacrifice, the victor, the resurrection, the life, and the savior to all who believe. He is the Lord, judge, king of kings. He alone is the one worthy to break the seals of the scrolls, and he is the one before whom there comes a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord Jesus Christ because he is worthy. And all of Scripture testifies it. The disciples went from absolute cowards to unyielding martyrs because they saw the glory of the resurrected Christ and they understood He alone is worthy. Now, we've all amen and applaud it just like any good church should. We know here He is worthy. The problem is we don't always know here that He is worthy. We live in a world that calls us to compromise, to bow to false gods, the false gods of our day, worldly pleasure. Maybe it's materialism or power or maybe it's workism, working nonstop and finding my identity in only what I do, worldly praise, fitting in, getting praise from other people fame, influence, maybe it's personal gratification, whatever makes me feel good and and brings pleasure, whatever gives me that dopamine high. There's all sorts of false gods. There's false gods we would label liberal. There's false gods we would label conservative. There's false gods that gross us out. There's false gods that we like. There's all sorts of false gods. And we bow down to them, church family, when we become willing to declare them as worthy of submitting to, of sacrificing for, and of obeying rather than God. We bow down when we make excuses to justify what clearly contradicts who He is at His revealed Word. We can bow down by taking giant leaps. We can bow down taking small steps. Can you imagine how easy it would have been for them to go, look, look, guys, hey, it's just a political thing. It's not really religious. It's, a, it's okay. Just a political ceremony. Uh, you know, we, we can bow down physically, but, but, but be standing in our hearts. You can hear them say, hey, the boss says we have to. Everybody else is doing it. Hey, you know what? If we do it, we can remain in the king's service, and if we're in the king's service, we can probably do good, more good for our people. You know what? He's being really gracious to give us a second shot. We, pro- we probably, you know, we should be nice and accept. There's all sorts of ways they could have justified and taken small steps to bow the knee, but they didn't. Understand, church family, we can bow to false gods taking giant leaps. We can also do it taking small steps. You do realize I walk around a lot on Sundays. If I were to ever jump, I could easily jump off this stage. 
But I can also fall off the stage just taking one small step at a time, not paying attention to where I'm going. We bow down when we seek a loophole to avoid suffering and standing out. Listen, church family, there's all sorts of gods today that many of us would go, man, look at all the ways. We look at all the ways the world's calling us to capitulate God's heart for sexuality. The world's calling, calling us to capitulate God's heart for the family. The world's calling us to capitulate God's heart for, for holiness. There's all sorts of things we might go look, but understand, church family, we haven't just woken up to a day where there's all sorts of false gods. There's been all sorts of false gods in our culture all along. Because we've lived in days where we've said, you know what, having that career, that career dream of mine where I'm going to get this office and have this 401k and take my family on these vacations is worthy of me neglecting my family and refusing to honor God's call to discipleship my kids. That's just as much a God, a false God. We've come to a day where we'll nickel and dime and, and do this to spend on whatever our pleasure or fancy, but don't you dare ask us to be cheerful and faithful givers to God's purposes through the local church. We've come to a day where we go, man, I'm just so sad. I can't say much. Oh, I'll make sure everybody knows. I'll make sure everybody knows where I stand politically. Oh, man, I'll make sure everybody knows what team I root for on Sunday and Saturday. But you won't ever hear me open up and share the gospel about who God is and what he can do for a human being made in his image. Church family, there are all sorts of false gods we can bow down to, and the reality is we didn't just wake up in a culture with new false gods. We've been living in a culture all along with false gods. They're just ones that most of us are comfortable with. And if we're really going to clap and applaud and amen and say, God, you are worthy, then we also have to bow before God and say, God, take your surgeon's scalpel with the Holy Spirit and show me where I've been bowing the knee to false gods. because he alone is worthy of our worship. There are no false gods that are worthy of our worship. We cannot compromise and say, well, how are we gonna do it, pastor? Well, we're gonna do it by walking in true faith. Because you see, the depth of our faith is gonna drive the loyalty of our worship. So what is faith, pastor? What is faith? Well, faith is, faith is confidently trusting who God is, God's character, at his word in loving obedience. True faith is not intimidated by danger and threats. It's not amazed or impressed by crowds and what they cheer. It doesn't sway or alter due to pomp and circumstance and society's celebrations. See, true faith, church family, just simply takes the Lord at His word. It rests securely on His command and promises as His word reveals. If the Lord says it, then for the person who walks in true faith, there's no longer an issue of debate or no longer a need for compromise. Amen. True faith is going to mean knowing who He is and what He does. You say, how do I walk in true faith? We've already seen it in chapters 1 and 2. You better believe part of what gave those, those young men strength in their legs to stand when everybody fell is they really knew who God is. God is the one who is the sovereign Lord of history. They weren't in some chaotic situation by accident. God had raised them up. God fearfully and wonderfully made them. God had gifted them. God had placed them there on the plain of Dura for such a time as that. Amen. And church family, I'll remind us, we've got to be confident in knowing we don't exist in this day, whether you like it or not, whether I like it or not, by some kind of mere happens chance. The world that to us looks chaotic, God is firmly and completely on His throne 
That doesn't mean that the choices of human beings don't cause problems or hurt or pain. God allows us to have make consequential choices. But you have been fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. You have been, if you are in Christ, redeemed by the blood of Jesus and gifted with a spiritual gifting, the God who took such minute detail to structure the basic cells that build life, how much more is he not concerned with working out his salvation in our lives? And he's got work for such a time as this that he put, he could have he put us in any day and time in all of history and he put us now. And if you still got breath in your lungs as a child, God, God's not done using you. And God's not done growing you. See, they understood God is sovereign. And there's an irony in this chapter that I honestly hadn't seen. And the more I've reread it and reread it this week, it, it really is funny. Bow down to the image. No God can save you. What's this image? Just go back and read it and count how many times the image. Nebuchadnezzar set up. The image Nebuchadnezzar set up. The image Nebuchadnezzar set up. You see, they understand that golden image doesn't represent a threat. It represents a farce. It's something human beings put up with human hands and therefore has absolutely no power. The only person who had power on the plains of Dura that day was God Almighty, and everybody else was just running around in a make-believe land. But those three men, they understood, God's your sovereign. This idol has no power. We are going to follow you. Faith means not just knowing who he is. It means knowing what he wills. Did you realize that? In that moment, they weren't just sure of who God is. They were sure of what God wanted them to do because God's made it clear in his word. And God's clear in his word with us, church family. God, Jesus is clear in places like Matthew chapter 10 that if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to take up the cross. He's going to send us out like wolves and like sheep in the midst of wolves. He's going to put us in situations where we'll be hated by the world on account of his name. He tells us that he's come not to bring peace but a sword that our following of Christ, it'll, it'll completely cause division in homes, not because we don't seek to be peacemakers but because if you're not in Christ, the righteousness of God pushes you away and you dislike it. The sin of the world breaks and responds and, and pushes back. You see, understand, church family, what has cost God much to save us is not cheap for us. Following will Jesus will cost us. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, he writes to a group of believers suffering. He says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that is among you. He says, but if you're going to suffer, suffer for the sake that you follow Jesus for who he is, rightly. You see, there, is a, there are some today who would say, oh, true faith. True faith would be those young men standing up and saying, King, our God is good, and we're going to call down fire on you from heaven. Listen, God does not guarantee us health, wealth, and prosperity and an easy life in this world. He does not guarantee it. And any pastor who writes a book or preaches a sermon and tells you that if you just have enough faith, God will take all the hardship out of your life, they are preaching what is ultimately a satanic twisting of the gospel. Satan is the one who says, bow to me and I'll give you what you want. God is the one who says, bow before me because I am worthy and I will give you everything you never knew you needed and is beyond your wildest imagination. 
See, true faith demands we take Him seriously. We don't become people who stand when everyone bows if we're people who constantly eat the King's food. Chapter 1. We don't become people who stand when everyone else bows if we're not people who fervently go into the closet and pray for the Lord to move in His might and His power. You see, church family, as you walk through the book of Daniel, we already know the things that are there. Understand, we will not worship loyally if our faith is not true. Now, here's the promise. When you and I walk with Jesus into the furnace, there is a fellowship of the flame. There is a fellowship of intimacy with God that we will only know when we enter the fires of affliction. There is a, to use a phrase from Paul, the fellowship of his sufferings. God does not simply deliver them from the flames. He dances in the flames with them. Listen, here is the reality. God will not always prevent us from hardship. And that day, God chose to pull Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of the fiery furnace. They were delivered physically. But understand, there are many brothers and sisters who have gone to heaven before us that were not delivered physically. Paul writes in, 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 in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, he said, At my trial, he says, Timothy, I'm here at the end. I know I'm about to die. At my trial, no one was there for me. But it says, but Jesus stood with me. By the way, Jesus is always pictured seated because His work is finished, but we see He stands when His people suffer for His glory because He stands in support and fellowship and intimacy with them. And then Paul makes this statement, He who is able to deliver me and bring me safely home. For some of us, we're going to know that we can rest assured that when we, when we remain standing, there is a fellowship that He's going to bring. There is an intimacy that He's going to bring that we will not know if we try to find ways to escape the furnace. And in that fellowship, it may be that the Lord delivers us physically in this world from whatever the hardship is. It may be that the Lord doesn't deliver us, and instead He says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in your weakness. It may be that the Lord delivers us, but it's not in this world. It's by taking us home. There is a fellowship. Though He exposes us to waters, rivers, and fires, to operating rooms, funeral parlors, and empty houses, to angry bosses, disgruntled classmates, and antagonistic neighbors, to pagan governments, to wicked policies, and threatening views. He never leaves us or forsake us. The fourth man is always with his people in the fire. We will know the fellowship, his fellowship in the flame. We will also display his glory as witnesses. Do you catch that at the end, church family? Nebuchadnezzar goes, wait a minute. Your God is the Most High God. We'll see, and we'll pick up more on this next week with Nebuchadnezzar. And he brings all the other rulers, goes, wait a minute, look, there's something here. Don't anybody speak against. There is a witness for the glory of Jesus that God will use us for in this world if we will simply just worship Him loyally and walk in true faith. There is a, a witness that is there. The reality of our our salvation brings a hope to our world, the witness of worship. We're fearfully and wonderfully made to be ambassadors for such a time as this. And church family, perhaps our witness is so weak because our worship is so tainted. The world doesn't buy a gospel 
The gospel that we claim because the sad reality is the worship of many of our lives doesn't say Jesus alone is worthy. And understand, church family, we may be at the point in our society where there are no more arguments, where there are no more apologetic debates that can win today. We may be at the point where the only witness we have left to give to the world around us is for them to see us carry our cross like Jesus, to suffer with joy while we love and forgive them, that they might see the man in the fire upholding us. The question is, do we really trust Him and do we really worship Him? Church family, today is the day to get up off the plains and to stand. Back in communist Russia, the KJB sent an agent to spy on the nation's churches one morning. And the agent saw this elderly woman uh, who was prostrated on the ground just weeping in worship of Jesus. And he said this, He said, Grandmother, are you prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved general secretary of our great communist party? And she replied rather shrewdly, Why, of course, but only if you crucify him for me first. Church family, understand today, there's a lot of gods we can bow down to, ones we like and ones we dislike. But there is only one God who is the true God, and there is only one God who is worthy of our worship. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. May we honor Him. Let's pray. Father, we look to You. Jesus, we're grateful that You are worthy. And Jesus, You being worthy is so much more than just simply, well, you're God, you're in charge, and so we've just got to... Lord, when we see you one day in in your holiness and glory, on one hand, there is that reality that is frightening and fearful, but Lord, we will also see the beauty of your glory, the splendor and majesty. We will be transfixed and enthralled at the the wonder of who you are. Lord, you're... You are worthy because of who you are. You are worthy because you are God, because you are king, because you are on the throne. You are worthy because you are good, because you give life, because you love. You are are worthy. Jesus, you are the lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, and you alone are worthy to open the scrolls, and you alone are worthy of our hearts. So Jesus, wherever me or any other brother and sister in this room or watching online needs to heed your conviction. May we repent of gods we've bowed to wherever we just need to be encouraged that in the midst of this world that pressures us with anger and malice to bow and to capitulate our worship, we may not escape the suffering, but you will dance in the fires with us. Lord, and if there's any in this room or that are joining in online, who don't know what it means to worship you because they don't know you. May today be the day that they find you in true faith. Jesus, it's in your name we pray.